All right, folks, welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now, in this episode, I chat with cinematographer and director Ernest Dickerson about his childhood horrors, life behind the lens, George Romero, and more. As always, thank you for listening, and if you'd like to help the show grow, Please leave us a review wherever you're listening to the podcast. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters' madness magic. <laughs> Take us back in time. You're a youngster. Are you a book mm-hmm. reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all of the above? Book reader, fort builder. My mother was a librarian, so oh. I had to start reading books at an early age, you know. A fort builder because, you know, it was always, I grew up in a housing project, Newark, New Jersey. Always was hanging out with my friends, you know. We would, a lot of times we had to make our own toys. We had to make up our own toys. We used to make uh, scooters out of uh, wooden milk crates, put on end and attach a piece of wood like a two by four underneath that. And, and then we put roller skates underneath it. And then we would do that. We also made guns out of a piece of wood where we had a rubber band that was tacked to one end and, and you stretch it. We had one of those clothespins at the end and we used to shoot bottle caps with that. We used to do that a lot. Whenever we had enough snow, we'd make our forts, you know, and have snowball fights. You know, at that age, it didn't take much snow to look like it was a lot, you know? Right. So, you said Virginia? You grew up in Virginia? No, Newark, New Jersey. Gotcha, gotcha. Sorry. Yeah, Newark, New Jersey. Yeah, so, you know, yeah, so fort builder, definitely, and, and book reader. Like I said, my mom had me reading at an early age. I actually got in trouble in the fifth grade for reading 1984. Really? Yeah, because I was reading science fiction. I was reading a lot of science fiction in 1984. You know, this is back in the 60s, so 1984 was futuristic. And I started reading it. And I think it was the first first book I ever read that had sex in it. But, you know, I stayed with it and got fascinated with it. But Sister Jean David, I went to Catholic school. Sister Jean David saw it and uh, said that I was committing the sin of pride because I was reading a book that was above my grade level. Yeah, so, you know, she didn't like that. What an appropriate book to get in trouble for. I'm sorry, just getting in trouble for 1984. (laughs) I know, yeah. Like 10 years old reading 1984. So, you know, I was always reading a lot of science fiction. I was on an Edgar Rice Burroughs kick when I was much younger reading uh, the Mars books the Venus books, some of the Tarzan books, but it was mostly the Mars and Venus books because I was really, and the the, the the Pellucidar books, you know, the Inner Earth books. The New York Public Library, where my mother worked, had a good selection of science fiction. So I would always go and check some out with my library card and read them. So, you know, heavy reader. And then um, looked at a lot of movies, you know, a lot of movies on television, you know, movies in the theater, you know, going to the movies on on weekends, on Saturdays or Sundays was always like a, a, a big event for me growing up. So going to the movies to see movies like uh, The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, Jason and the Argonauts. I remember going to see The Tingler. And uh, when it played in the theater, my cousin Vita took me to see The Tingler. Went to see I Was a Teenage Frankenstein. 
Now, when you saw the Tingler, did they have the, uh, someone said that they saw the Tingler and they had the addition in the theater where they did the air, where it hit you on the leg? I didn't know if it happened in my theater, but what they did do is when, you know, in the part of the movie where the Tingler gets loose in the movie theater in the, in the actual film, and Vincent Price says, ladies and gentlemen, the Tingler's loose in the movie theater, scream, scream for your life. They actually turned off the lights and everybody in the theater is screaming and they stopped the movie and a couple of the ushers went down to the front row and carried somebody out. <laughs> you <know? laughs> so, so, you know, that, you know, that freaked us out. That was like, oh, wow, you know, <laughs> but I didn't get the I didn't get the tickle thing on the on the thing. And then after that, they said, now we will start the movie again. And the movie goes back, went back on. So that was my encounter with uh, William Castle's little what, what did he call it? Emergo or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But that was fun, you know. The new horror films or the new science fiction films coming out was always a big, a big thing for us. The earliest movie I can remember ever seeing was "It Came from Beneath the Sea," the Ray Harryhausen giant octopus film. And later on, in a conversation with Joe Dante, he confirmed because it was playing on a double bill with a movie called "The Creature with the Atom Brain." I didn't know the name of that movie, but I just remember these zombies walking around and just like hitting people later on i found out that that was it and joe confirmed that yeah that was the double bill so i think seeing that movie and and the way it portrayed the ocean at night always stuck with me you know you know it was a day for night stuff the way it was shot but it always stuck with me you know looking at the ocean i'm just you know fascinated with the ocean at night you know when you see moonlight sparkling off the water and uh, it always brings back memories of that movie this is something i like to ask everyone ernest so what scared you as a kid it was the dark, I think, you know, having my back turned towards something dark. I remember even when I was a teenager, you know, sometimes taking the garbage out and putting the garbage in the um, in the incinerator and, and, and the hallway behind me would be dark. And I always like just try to get that bag in there and, <laughs> and get inside. I think it was, yeah, it was that, you know, growing up in the projects, we had our, our own little mythologies, I think. I, there was always this talk about the man with the knife. And every now and then, you know, we, we would be playing and word would, would just spread around all the kids. The man with the knife is coming. The man with the knife is coming. And we'd always, and we'd all like run home or hide someplace until it was all clear, you know. <laughs> and I never saw this guy, but he was, you know, it was like the man with the knife was always, you know, kind of like this mythological being that uh, sometimes, you know, the, the paranoia just spread amongst these, all us kids. Very Candyman-like. Yeah, so it, there was that. Yeah, it was main, mainly that kind of stuff. I knew that movies were a craft pretty early on, you know, and I started really, when I started reading uh, Famous Monsters of Filmland, that was the first magazine that I ever found that, that really got into explaining how some movies were made. And um, and I was really, really, really interested in visual effects. I was, a, I was, you know, a bit of a visual effects junkie as a kid growing up. Still am to a certain point, but I kind of kind of lost interest in it when it, when everything went digital. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, so it, it seemed to lose its its uh, handmade aspects, you know, which was so cool you know, when it was photochemical and models and everything like that. Like I was an avid follower of everything that ILM did, you know, when they after they opened up in Star Wars, the first Star Wars in '77, and you know, just following the things that they did, the the revolution, the revolutionary advances they made i remember going to see um dragon slayer which was you know this you know the whole idea of go motion i thought was really really fascinating it was stop motion animation but putting the blur in the frame and you know so i was always fascinated with stuff like that when digital came along it was like uh, okay it's not so much fun 
<laughs> you know, as a kid, I, you know, we used to build stuff. You know, always used to, you know, I had an erector set. My friends had erector sets. We would get together and just, you know, trade each other's stuff and, and just have building stuff parties, you know. So what about your parents, Ernest? Were either of them artistically inclined? Did you pull some of that from them? No, my mom was a good reader. My dad died when I was eight years old. So, but my mom was a reader. She, I don't think she ever understood my love of science fiction and, and, and horror, but she didn't dissuade me. I never was told, don't watch this movie or don't watch that movie. You know, I was an altar boy going to Catholic school and everything. And, and, and we had these lists of movies that what they call a morally objectionable by the, by the Catholic Church. And they were the, the movies that were condemned. And one of them that I really wanted to see was Black Sunday. Mario Bava's Black Sunday was on the condemned list. And finally, when I finally did get to see it, you know, I was like, whoa, this is so good. <laughs> you know, it, you know, all the movies I wanted to see were like down on the list where, where we weren't supposed to go see that stuff. The quickest way to get a kid to want to watch a movie is tell them don't watch it, you know. Don't watch it, yeah. <laughs> so when did you begin to experiment yourself creatively, be it with short stories or maybe shooting your own Super 8 movies or what have you? I didn't have access to a movie camera. I used to draw, I guess, you know, nowadays you would look at them as almost like storyboards. I used to draw... I would adapt movies, you know, I would adapt certain movies, but I would draw them in a pad, you know, in panels. And uh, and I even gave him, you know, credits, title sequences and stuff like that. I even did one in 3D, you know, or, or an attempt at 3D because there was some 3D bubblegum cards that had recently come out and you got the red and green, the red and uh, green glasses. And so I tried drawing this stuff, you know, with a red pen and then going right next to it, try to duplicate the same thing with a the green pen. Sometimes it worked, you know, sometimes, it, you know, sometimes it didn't sometimes, but sometimes it did work. But it was an interesting way to just play around with with images. Did you ever have any interest in a theater or drama or anything like that growing up? I didn't take it seriously. It wasn't until years later. I mean, I was always fascinated with how movies were made. I was always fascinated by why certain movies looked the way they did. The fact that it was a photographic process, I didn't know anything about that yet. There wasn't anybody around to, to do that. But when I was in high school, my uncle, who was a jazz musician and a music scholar, he was teaching music at Wesleyan University in Connecticut. He took classes in photography. And he used to come home, you know, come over our house sometimes with these beautiful black and white prints that he did. It was just amazing how these how these looked. And I just loved the way they looked. And one night we were watching David Lean's Oliver Twist, the one in 1948. And that was one of those movies that I was always loved the look of it. Why does it look, you know, what is it about the way this movie looks that just fascinates me so much? And I'm sitting there with my uncle because we used to sit sit up late at night watching movies into the wee hours of the morning on the late show, the late, late show and the late, late, late show. And we're watching it. And uh, the opening scene of Oliver's mother in labor walking across the moors with the clouds across the sky against skeletal trees and everything. And my uncle just happened to say, damn, this photography is beautiful. And that's when it, I said, whoa, photography. And in the credits, there's this person called a director of photography. And that's when I really started pursuing my love of film. My uncle helped me buy my first camera, my first still camera, and I started taking pictures. And uh, that's how I fell in love with photography. Still didn't take it seriously, though, because I wound up going to undergraduate school for architecture. But I wound up taking classes in photography and also had a job in college on the newspaper as a photographer. And when I was in undergrad, all the part-time jobs that I was able to find were all in photography. So, <laughs> so I started making money in photography pretty early on. 
Ernest, I know you broke in early on into the business with Spike Lee. Can you just take us through how you and Spike met and how that relationship formed and how things got going for you? Well, we met first day at NYU. I had I graduated from Howard University in architecture in 1977. And at that time, I also had a part-time job at the medical school doing medical photography. So I stayed on until, yeah, in a series of photographing leg amputations, I just decided, okay, I got to move on to something else. <laughs> so, so that's when I applied to NYU Film School. So at NYU, I went to NYU as a cinematography major. Spike and I met first day. We were in two separate sections. But I found out that he went to Morehouse. He, he was a graduate of Morehouse College, and I was a graduate of Howard University. And Howard routinely beat Morehouse's butts in homecoming football games. We started ragging on each other's school and everything and everything. But eventually the, the conversation got serious, what we were there for. We were there to, to make films, to find a way of making films. And we weren't able to work together until the second year because we were in two separate sections. I was in section A, he was in section B. But we would go to see movies together. We both talk about our dream projects. One of them that we both talked about was the autobiography of Malcolm X, which we ultimately were able to make. And then in second year, I was able to start working, you know, shooting his films. That was a great thing about NYU is that even though I was a cinematography major, I still could write and direct my own films, depending upon how much money I could raise to do it. They always gave us a certain amount of film. So, you know, which is usually about 300 feet. So you had to try and write a film that you can do in that amount of money. Spike had some money from his grandmother who had a she had a trust fund for her children. She set up a trust fund years ago for her for her grandchildren. And so he was able to use some of that money into financing slightly longer projects. The first movie that I shot for Spike was our second year. It was an adaptation of a short story about sibling rivalry in a, in a black family on Thanksgiving. And it was fun. You know, it was cool. We did it. That was the first thing we did together. So I know you initially went to school for photography and you wanted to be behind, but literally behind the camera. Was that drive to direct and write? Was that always there? Kind of like in the back. I mean, you know, cinema photography was my my main thing that I was interested in. But I was, I think the first film that really got me thinking about directing was uh, Clockwork Orange. Stanley Kubrick's Clockwork Orange. I had became a big Kubrick fan after 2001, which is still my, fr my favorite film of all time. But I had a book. There was a book that I got that was uh, a shot by shot of Clockwork Orange and just looking at that made me think about directing, you know, possibly directing. So I was still interested in cinematography. I was still interested. In, and actually the directors whose work I really, really liked were directors who used the camera in interesting ways to tell the story, you know, like Kubrick and, and Hitchcock, David Lean. And so these were guys whose work I always looked at. And, and actually, even when I was in Washington, D.C., there were great theaters that would have uh, retrospectives, like a Nicholas Rogue retrospective. They might have a double bill of Walkabout and Don't Look Now, things like that. That's where I really first started seeing movies like The Man That Fell to Earth, THX 1138. We saw Star Wars. I was When I was working at the medical school in 77, we knew Star Wars was coming because we were all readers of uh, Cinefantastique magazine. And so, you know, they were always talking about this Star Wars that was coming up. And we were like, what is this? What is this? So the day that it opened, we got all our, all our assignments done real early. And we shut our, because we, we had a running photographic lab at the medical school, you know, doing medical photography, you know, developing film and everything else. So we got all of our assignments done, shut down the lab early and went in to see the first screening of Star Wars at the Uptown Theater in 70 millimeter. Damn. 
with this amazing screen. It was kind of like wraparound. And we and we just walked right in. That's you know, amazing. the line hadn't started forming yet. So we just walked right in and we were just blown away. We just, you know, just were totally blown away by it. And the thing about it was that we liked it so much, we stayed to see it again. You know, they didn't make us leave. They, <laughs> they, so we saw it twice in a row. This And the second time we were able to get right down front right in the wraparound right in front of the wraparound screen which was it wasn't right in front of you it, it was like the front of the theater kind of like curved up oh, so there yeah. was some distance between the front row seats and the screen so that shot of diving into the the death star trench was like a real a real roller scoping experience and we just were blown away by it and when we walked out the theater the line was around the block <laughs> <laughs> and so you know we had already seen it twice so we had have to see it again for a while it was an amazing experience you know the kind of experience that makes you want to make movies and do you think that since you started with cinematography and learned the ins and out of the camera that kind of helped you have some tricks up your sleeve when you did begin to direct your own on your own yeah, I, I still look at what I can bring visually to a script, how I can use the camera to tell the story. And even, you know, even in the television work, you know, my gods are Orson Welles, Alfred Hitchcock, Stanley Kubrick, David Lean, David Lynch, some of Francis Coppola and Scorsese, definitely Marty Scorsese. When Spike and I were in film school, Raging Bull was a major, major influence on both of us. You know, just people that, that know how to use the camera like a paintbrush in, in ways of telling the story. And so, yeah, you know, uh, it's something that I started developing in my work with Spike. But when I started directing, I always look for something that I can, a way of approaching it visually, you know, how to visually approach the story. So, and, and it's always challenging. You know, that's what I love about it is that you're constantly being challenged and you're constantly solving problems. And that's what I think architecture gave me because architecture was about problem solving and when you're making a film that's what you're trying to do solve you're solving problems a lot of them <laughs> how, after that first film with spike how did the opportunity to work on tales from the dark side happen for you well what happened was that after i did sarah for spike in the second year his third year project his graduate thesis film was joe's bedstar barbershop we cut heads and that actually went to a festival in New York called New Films, New Directors Series. It was seen by somebody that ultimately gave me my first film. I was shooting promotional pieces for the Archdiocese of Brooklyn, you know, public relations type stuff, occasional music videos for small-time groups and stuff. And I had no idea how I was going to be able to get into the union or how I was going to shoot my first film. And I got this phone call out of the blue. A lady named Peggy Rajski said, look, I'm... I'm production manager and I work with John Sales. Have you ever heard of John Sales? I said, well, yes. John Sales at that point was the premier number one American independent filmmaker. And she said, uh, well, he's getting ready to make a science fiction film called The Brother Who Fell to Earth and uh, would like to talk. And she said, it's kind of like a Roger Corman-esque kind of a thing. He would be interested in talking to you about it. So I said, yeah. So I went in and met with John had a great conversation. He had not yet written the script, but he told me the whole story. He told me the whole thing. Asked me if I had ever shot 35. I lied and said yes. <laughs> so I got this movie that ultimately, the title was ultimately changed to The Brother from Another Planet. 
And we did that, shot that in uh, 1983, and it came out in 1984. That was my first film. The producers of Tales from the Dark Side saw that, and that's what got me the work on the the first season, the first and part of the second season of Tales from the Dark Side. Is that ultimately also how you ended up working on Day of the Dead as well? That relationship? Yeah. Well, what happened was that uh, I shot episodes that were directed by Michael Gornick, who was uh, George's uh, George Romero's cinematographer. And, you know, we really hit it off. You know, we, we had a great relationship. And then, you know, he ultimately told me that, uh, hey, you know, I'm going to do Day of the Dead. I'm going to need some second unit work. Would you be down for, for coming there? And I said, yeah. I'd already seen Night of the Living Dead. It was like one of the few films that gave me nightmares. <laughs> While I was in D.C., we went to see Dawn of the Dead. We went to like a midnight screening of Dawn of the Dead, and that blew us away. So to be offered Day of the Dead was really, really cool. So that's how that happened. That was that was a crazy experience. What was your first impression of George when you met him? Did you guys hit it off? Man, George was the coolest guy ever. You know, I loved George. I really did. He and his crew were really, really cool people. I mean, you know, we were shooting in Fort Myers, Florida. And basically what it was, the opening sequence where these people are looking for survivors and they land in this town. And as they're uh, calling out and you see the walking dead, the zombies slowly come up and step out. That was my job to shoot all of that. The zombies in the movie theater, the zombies in the alleyways, you know, who gradually, who gradually turn into a mob going up the street. And the way it happened was that they started, they had all these extras that they were going to make up. This is where, this is where I first met Greg Nicotero also, because uh-huh. Nicotero was on the, uh, was on the makeup crew with, under uh, Tom Savini. So they started putting makeup on extras around 5 a.m. I think we had like a 6 a.m. call or a 7 a.m. call. And they would feed us zombies one by one. And we did the things like the uh, the alligator on the sitting on the pile of money. That was crazy because uh, the alligator did not want to sit still. So it was like rolling, you know, it had it tied up, roll camera. And then the guys like untied it and jumped out of frame. And I had like, maybe like only a couple of seconds till the alligator started like buckling and stuff. So had to do that. I remember fighting to get the newspaper to like blow up against the garbage can the garbage basket you know say the dead rise or something like that and then they started feeding us zombies one by one as they came out we would film singles and doubles and more and more and more and more and the plan was by the end of the day after they had been able to really uh, make up I guess I, f- I guess it was about a hundred zombies I forget exactly how many we were gonna have this high angle shot from this rooftop looking down on all these zombies walking up the street and so it was gradually building up to that it was an interesting experience because uh, I didn't have anything to work with I had like two shiny board reflectors and I think one sun gun you you're talking about bright Florida sunshine and I'm trying to shoot underneath an awning of a movie theater which is dark so the contrast is amazing normally you try to pump light in in the dark to bring it up closer to the brightness of the sunshine but still dark enough to register as dark and it was it was tough doing that so um so we were going at it my friend frank prinzi who had been my ac on uh, brother from another planet was my ac on that and we were just trying to go with it what was really funny was that um, we were supposed to look at dailies george had a house on sanibel island and there was an old movie theater there so they rented the movie theater for the day and instead of showing the dailies on their screening room they were going to show dailies in this uh this theater since i had to catch a plane back to new york my dailies were up first and i'm sitting there with michael gornick and and george and John Harrison, and because John Harrison was the second unit director. And we're looking at my dailies, and my dailies came up, and they were so dark. 
they looked like really bad day for night. And I said, oh my God, did I mess it up? What? Wait a minute. I couldn't, no, I couldn't have done it. That it couldn't be that. And, and, you know, I'm feeling George fidgeting in the seat <laughs> behind me. And Michael Gornick is kind of like, Ugh, you know, next to me. So I jumped up and I ran back into the, the projection booth. And this is the Deep South now. And so there's this guy who's the projectionist who was probably around late 60s, early 70s, you know. And I said, excuse me, sir, can I take a look at the film? He said, why you want to look at our film for? Well, it's just, it's looking pretty dark. And he said, it's not dark. This is where we always show our movies with our projected like this. I said, well, I think your bulb is turned down a little bit too far. So I was able to like get a piece of the film and hold it up to the light and look good. Michael Gornick came up behind me. He said, it looks good to me. I said, okay, okay. Well, you know, we went down and we said, well, told everybody, well, it looks good when you hold it up to the light. But then we're looking at these dark, dark dailies. And they said, okay, Ernest, uh, you better get your plane home. Thanks for coming down and we'll talk oh, later. man. So... That flight back from Florida to New York was like one of the was like one of the longest flights I've ever had. I was I kept thinking that I I couldn't have set my meters wrong. You know, I didn't, you know, but a boom. I'm just trying to think it up. Think what happened. I got home, I walked in the door, my wife said, How'd it go? I said, I don't know. I might have fucked up. <laughs> I might have fucked up big time. I hope I didn't. I'm thinking this is the end of my career. And after I was home about 10, 15 minutes, the phone rang and it was Michael Gornick calling me saying Ernest after you left we put George's he put the stuff up that they shot and that stuff was way too dark so they, they took it down they took it back to the projection booth that they had at the screening room you know in the production office and project they said everything was fine Oof. Yeah, there you but, <laughs> man oof. talk about a, a sphincter factor of, uh, of I can't like, imagine you know no text or 20, nothing either just... yeah <laughs> After all those zombies, after they spent all that time making up all those people, you know, so it was crazy. Oh, man, that's wild. <laughs> but so what was funny was that every time I saw George Romero after that, as soon as he saw me, he'd, he'd bust out laughing. <laughs> he, he would always bust out laughing. Yeah. Yeah, he was cool. I, I really love I, I miss him a lot. I really do. So, Ernest, I can't skip over this because I watched this with my grandpa when I was way too young. I got to ask you about Eddie Murphy's Raw. How did that happen for you? Actually, it was uh, Robert Townsend who called me because he was he was going to direct it. It was right after, I think it was right after She's Gotta Have It came out. But anyway, I got this phone call from Robert and, and he wanted me to uh, shoot it. And we were able to bring in uh, Wynn Thomas as the production designer who had been production designer on She's Gotta Have It. You know, we set it up. It was real interesting. You know, we tried to design the look of it. The whole idea was to do a red curtain with Eddie wearing a black leather suit. And so we were going to shoot at the Felt Forum, which was in Madison Square Garden in, in New York. And so we were all, you know, we bought the curtain and, you know, we knew Eddie had his black suit because we had seen him in it. Eddie wouldn't talk to us. You know, we kept trying to have meetings with him, but he wouldn't talk to us. He wouldn't talk to me. He wouldn't talk to Robert. We kept trying to schedule and he kept calling it off. So one day somebody came in with this purple and I guess kind of pinkish paisley suit leather suit i said this is what eddie's gonna wear he said whoa 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 no no this doesn't go along with our plan they said no no this is what he's wearing no 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 no. you don't understand we need the black suit you know we because we already got the curtain for the black he said he said no no this is what he's wearing there's no this is what eddie is mandating so we had to completely go with a different curtain because you know wind's looking at it and he said that's not gonna match that's not gonna look good together this paisley and and, and that curtain so we had to go more with a uh, pinkish wine colored type thing had to change the whole thing 
And it was a it was an exercise and almost like shooting live television because I had it worked out so that Eddie would arrive in the garage in his limo. He and his bodyguards would walk to the dressing room. I said routinely before he went on stage, he would sit at, sit at a piano and just noodle, play the piano, and then go out. So the idea was to have Steadicam take him from the from the limo to the dressing room. I had a handheld camera in the dressing room to shoot him getting ready for that. Meanwhile, Steadicam was was reloading outside. Then Steadicam would take him from the dressing room towards the stage, at which point Robert and I would run up to our control board. We had we had six cameras out in the audience and each one had a video feed so that we could see what each camera was seeing. And, you know, the tricky part was always to make sure that when cameras had to reload to make sure we had at least one camera still shooting, you know, because a lot of sometimes they would all run out around the same time. So we had to, that was great. That was interesting. But what apparently would happen though, I think Eddie had just broken up with his girlfriend. So he was not in in the best of moods. So I think part of that's where that thing half came from, which my wife was in the audience at that time and at intermission, she went to the ladies' room, and the women in the ladies' room, ooh, the things they were saying about Eddie Murphy. They said, "If I ever see that motherfucker, I'm gonna kick his ass. I'm gonna kill him." You know, it was he was making so many ladies mad. You know, <laughs> it was crazy, and it was like the and it was at the end of his tour. So, and his mother was in the audience. I understand it was it was uh, but but it was it was interesting. It was real interesting, and then. Um, I had a chance to work with Sam Jackson because he's, you know, in the in the in the little prologue thing that we did. You know, Sam is like one of the people that watching Eddie uh, perform at the house and everything. <laughs> but it was cool. Uh, yeah, apparently Eddie was not in a good mood and it came out in his performance, which mm. sometimes happens with comedians. Yeah, yeah. So correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Ernest, but Juice was your directorial debut. Yes. I just wanted to ask you. Clearly, you know, '90s were all aware of Tupac the artist. I wanted to know what you thought about Tupac the actor. Were you surprised? Well, when we first met Tupac, to me, that's what he was. He was not known as a rap artist at that time. He was a background singer and a roadie for Digital Underground. So when he came in, he came in and auditioned as an actor. We had no idea until later. He, I mean, he had not done any albums yet. He had not really put anything out yet. He was still unknown as a, as a rap artist. But later on, I was to find out that his management company, they were pushing him to record around the same time that we were shooting the, shooting the movie. And what was really interesting about Tupac was that, I mean, you know, a lot of guys came in and auditioned for Bishop. I was having a hard time finding Bishop. That was really the last character to be cast because a lot of guys thought just, you know, just going coming in and showing me how ballistic they could go would get them the role. But his training as an actor, he was able to understand the pain that is behind Bishop's actions, you know, and that's the thing that he brought out in his audition. You know, he didn't come into audition. He came in with Tretch from Naughty by Nature. He was just hanging out with Tretch. <laughs> and Tretch came in to read and, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm at the point where I'm getting desperate because I'm, I'm still not finding my Bishop. And so it was basically, hey man, what about you? You want to read? Me? Oh yeah, sure. Why not? You know, and at first I gave him the pages for the character of Q. And so he did that and thought he was pretty, I thought he was pretty good. But then I just said, can you stay a little bit longer? And then I gave him the pages for Bishop and he went away, came back and auditioned and uh, knocked it out the box. When did you realize yourself that, you know, when he starts becoming the worldwide Tupac that we all know that that was that guy? After the, after, well, after the movie came out, but you know, while we were shooting the movie in between setups, he always had a notebook and he would always 
he was always over in the corner. You know, when he wasn't hanging out and fooling around with, with the cast, you know, he would sit in the corner and, and write. And he was always meeting people. He was always, you know, if he saw somebody in the on the street that looked like they had an interesting story going with them or they looked like they were in trouble or looked like they had some kind of problems going on or something like that, he would always talk to people you know he would always always talk with people we were always trying to get come on man we got to get the shot off you got to tell her goodbye and, and come get the shot off so and i like to think that a lot of the people that he talked to a lot of those conversations probably fueled a lot of his uh, a lot of his music he was a brilliant young man i wanted to ask you about your take on the most dangerous game uh you bring together rugger howard gary Busey, and ice t in one movie is there any stories from set <laughs> about those guys <laughs> Yeah, you know, <laughs> well, I see Rucker Hauer, F. Murray Abraham. Hmm. I I was really and and Charles Charles Dutton. You know, I was really and Rucker Hauer, man, Rucker. When I found out that Rucker was available and, and was interested in it, I heard all these horror stories about Rucker. Now, I was a big fan of Rucker's. I, I first saw him in the Stallone movie Nighthawks, where he played the terrorist. And then when he showed up in Blade Runner, you know, and just, just took the whole world by storm. I think when I told my agent, yeah, I think we have a good chance of getting Rucker Howard. I, I kept getting, well, watch out for him. He's, I understand he's quite a handful. I said, okay. So I agreed to meet with Rucker at uh, this hotel in uh, Santa Monica. I was in Santa Monica at the time. And Rucker came in, you know, he he was riding his motorcycle. He came in and I'm leery, wary, you know, wondering how this is gonna go. Man, we rapped for like four and a half hours. Rucker was so cool. He was such a very, very, very cool gentleman. I I really fell in love with the man. He um he just had a low bullshit tolerance. You know, he didn't want any bullshit. You know, he just wanted to come do the work and go home, you know. And um, but we just rapped, you know, we just talked for like four and a half hours. And he was so cool to work with. You know, he had some interesting ideas, some of which were cool, some of which weren't cool. I found out early on that okay, if if he's got an idea that's not gonna work, just have a good reason for telling him why it's not going to work. Right. <laughs> he and Charles Dutton started developing this interesting relationship between them, their characters, you know, because they were, because they had worked together in intelligence. So it was so, you know, so interesting. So, you know, when we were designing the cabin that the, that the guys were staying in, I wanted everything in that cabin to be something that had once been alive. Wood, the tables were wood. Even the, there was a trash can that was actually a hollowed out elephant's foot that had been you know hollowed out and made into a trash can and you know the, the the heads on the wall and everything else and you know it was color coordinated and we built the cabin knowing that we were going to burn it down later and it was real interesting because the first four days of production we we shot the dinner scene and one of my favorite scenes in movies is the indianapolis scene in jaws when oh, Robert, yeah, man. I can story. quote that thing. It get me. Ha uh, I got my hair standing up when you mentioned it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a scene that always sends chills down my spine, and I wanted something like that. And so we um, we shot that over several days. All the stuff at the cabin, and F. Murray Abraham was so cool. I mean, you know, I was a little bit worried because this is Salieri. He's already won an Academy Award <laughs> for Best Actor, and I'm thinking. You know, how fun will Salieri be to work with? And F. Murray Abraham was so cool. The thing about Murray was that every day on set, you had to have a dirty joke for him. <laughs> he would have one for you. <laughs> it was it was like a ritual, you know. What do you got for me today, Ernest? <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
I'm always trying to find a dirty joke. But what happened was that where we built this cabin was an hour away, an hour's drive. We were shooting up in Wenatchee, Washington, which is about a four hour drive away from Seattle, up in the, the Cascade Mountains. And it was an hour's drive from the hotel to the set. One night, Murray decided he wanted to drive himself. And these are dark country roads up in the mountains, you know, I mean, like dark with some of which have no no street lamps at all. Murray was riding. He decided to drive himself home one night. And when he was driving, he went through an intersection. The other driver ran through the stop sign, didn't stop at the intersection and just hit Murray's car in the side on the passenger side. His car spun around to the other side of the road. Murray's face went into the in, went into face went into the uh, steering wheel. He wound up breaking three bones in his hand. The driver of the other car was killed, and I think the two people that were in the car had to be li- airlifted out by medevac. They found whiskey bottles and, and, and beer cans all in the car. And so for those first several days in the woods, we had to shoot around Murray because Murray would have been there on set. So when you look at the film, you'll notice that. <laughs> For that first chase, when they're after Ice-T, when they're talking about it, Murray's character kind of stays in the back and doesn't say a word. That was his stunt double, because Murray was in the hospital. Double is in the background, and he's got goggles on to to hide him. You know, body type was roughly like his, but, you know, but he doesn't say much. He's kind of like in the background, where normally his character was, you know, pretty talkative. So apparently, um, I think his agent was telling him, look, you were almost killed because he could have gotten killed. He said, look, you were almost killed. Just quit the production and, you know, they'll they'll have to, you know, insurance will take care of everything. And Murray said, I can't. He said, what am I going to do? I, he said, I got to work. Otherwise, I'll be thinking about what almost happened to me after several days you know he came back to work and so with the broken hand he was in a cast so that's why he has to wear a black leather glove all the time to hide the cast and he could do maybe one or two takes that he'd have to sit down and rest because he was on heavy painkillers we were really working with him and stuff to try and uh, get him through it we were falling behind because of this and my producer tried to go back to New Line and try and get, um, you know, some more money or at least get our schedule expanded. New Line wasn't having it because mm. I did not know that I found out later that it was a production deal between New Line and David Permit Productions. They started out as friends, but by this point, they were enemies. And Surviving the Game was the last film in that agreement. So basically, it was a contractual obligation. And my major problem was the fact that with the cast that I had put together, the movie had already made its money back before we even went to camera. So basically, as far as New Line was concerned, look, we made our money back. We're not losing anything. We have no reason to really help you with this film. Damn. And they weren't helpful at all. So I think my producer was sitting there and I think he was basically told, if you came here to try and get more money, you just get the fuck out of here right now. I think that's the way it was told to him. Shit. Yeah. So we're struggling trying to make this movie. And, you know, Murray, he was working and he was... He really appreciated what the crew did, how the crew had really, you know, tried to help him out. So he did something really cool. He bought out a restaurant and he gave a party. He bought out a restaurant and and just gave a party for everybody. The only he had to wear something red to get into the party. So, you know, people were wearing like red ties, red handkerchiefs. You know who came up with the best idea? Rutger. Rutger had some young ladies, red lipstick, kiss him all over his face. And he showed up with this red, all these little red lip marks all over him. <laughs> Too cool for school. Yeah. 
The man was a genius. The man was a genius. I love. I I was. I cried the day he he passed away. Let me just ask you: Did Mr. Busey behave himself on that set? Kinda. I I got to tell you the thing about Gary though. Yeah, he was. He 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 got kind of crazy, but you know he really he really got into the role because when he showed up, he showed up. Uh, we had started shooting some stuff. And he showed up and, uh, hey, hey, Gary just arrived. Oh, I got to go meet Gary. So I knock on his trailer door and I go inside. Hey, Gary, Ernest, I'm your director. He says, hey, hey, hey. And he takes my hand. And he says, do you know, you, you know about the hole in my head from my motorcycle accident? That's the first thing he said to me. And there's this hole in his head. There is like an indentation in his head from this motorcycle accident. So he was having trouble figuring out the character, you know, because, you know, we're, we're doing the line readings. And he's saying, he said, well, this is such a crazy, you know, he's, the whole story about how he was raised with this dog and how his father put him in this, in the basement and told him, when are you going to come out of there alive? You were the dog. And he said, he said, it's such a crazy story. He said, are, are we going for laughs here? Is it comedy? I said, no, Gary. I said, okay, this is where it comes from, Gary. It's a true life story that was told by a young kid who was raised in a white supremacist group up in Idaho. And this kid's father wanted to toughen his son up and he took his dog away, starved the dog for two weeks. The kid didn't know where the dog was. The father took the kid out. The dog was tied up in a, in a, in a, in a barn and the dog was like ravaging, ravingly hungry by this time. The dog was you know, going crazy in there. And the father told the dog, he said, I mean, told the son, he said, look, uh, that's your dog in there. Your dog's hungry. I'm going to put you in there with your dog. That dog's going to attack you. I said, I only want to see one of you come out of there alive. You were that dog. And when I told that to Gary, he said, oh, man, really? He, like, really freaked out. He said, really? And he told me, he said, Ernest, you really watered my garden. <laughs> <laughs> so he really, really glommed on to that role. He actually called me up. I think it was like 3, 3.30 in the morning. He was up. You know, he was up. I don't know what he was doing to stay up, but he was up. <laughs> and he said, Ernest, Ernest, that, that line, what if I say it like this? I said, I said Gary, Gary, said, oh, oh, are you sleeping? Yeah, Gary, I am sleeping. Oh, let's talk in the morning. Okay. He really, you know, he ma he named the dog Prince Henry Stout. He came up with that name. And apparently later on, he told me that when he was growing up on a farm, he had uh, an old dog that had puppies, but the mother dog was too old to produce milk. And so the puppies were going to die. And so he said his father made him go out there with a hammer and kill each one of those puppies. So it got kind of heavy. shit. Yeah, yeah, it got kind of heavy. You know, but uh, the next time I saw Gary was about a year, maybe two years later at another premiere someplace. And I say, hey, Gary, how you doing? Ernest, how you doing, man? I'm still thinking about Prince Henry Stout, man. You know, I'm still thinking about that. You know? <laughs> he was Gary Busey. So I'm a huge horror fan. Demon Knight was a staple in my house growing up. I just wanted to ask you, to me, that's one of the best Tales from the Crypt movie and just one of the best horror movies of that era in general. Oh, thank you. It's it's a travesty that you never directed your own episode of Tales from the Crypt. Did that Was that ever in the cards? No, I wasn't, <clears throat> I wasn't doing any television then. I was really trying to stay in features. No, but, you know, that movie came out really well because I had a great producer, Gil Adler. They were, you know, I'm still friends with Gil to this day. I, I just saw him last week. We were up in uh, Vancouver. He and his wife were up there. So we're trying to do, we're trying to find stuff to do together still. Mm -hmm. No, and and actually, even though it, it was under the banner of Tales from the Crypt, it wasn't really a Tales from the Crypt movie. It, you know, didn't have that comeuppance, you know, that 
somebody getting their comeuppance uh, formula that the Tales from the Crypt had. What I liked about it was that it was a it was a, a chance to create like a mythology, a new mm. mythology. Gil was really, really supportive. He was really cool. T- the time and the budget that we had. And I'm glad that he took my advice because, you know, the whole thing is set at night. And I was the one that said, look, I, I, can't we shoot this in a studio someplace? Rather than, you know, rather than do, because shooting night for night out in the desert, the crew is going to die. So taking that, he found the airplane hangar that we shot it in. It was in, it was a, a decommissioned airplane hangar at Van Nuys Airport here in California. And that's where, that's where we shot it. And, and Christian Wagner, who was my production designer on Surviving the Game, designed and built that house in, on the stage and everything and and that gave us maximum control so we could we could have regular working hours we could go in for 7 a.m call and work until uh 7 p.m you know and under total control so everything almost everything was done in that studio except for the opening car chase a lot of that was out on out in the desert out on the road and then the final scene where jada gets on the bus that was actually our first day of shooting uh jada uh-huh. getting the bus and the guy who plays the the next collector who comes up at the very end, uh, he was actually my next door neighbor when in Brooklyn when I lived in Brooklyn. Wow, <laughs> Mark Kennelly, you know, he was uh, so you know he came in and he and he did it. So you know we were able to do everything in the studio and it made it it just gave us so much more control and it was a much more comfortable environment and everybody had a ball we had we had a good time doing it i've spoken with william sadler he's one of the nicest i've ever had the chance just to talk to he's just just a nice guy yeah i love bill you know which i had more time to more time to work with. i did work on him one other time on a movie shooting in uh, north carolina and it was a short piece because he his character gets blown away in the beginning of the movie <laughs> <laughs> but you know, but but yeah, he was he was such a good guy. You know, he was good. Gary Farmer was great. CCH Pounder was really cool. Charlie, you know, everybody was uh, really wonderful to work with. I'm surprised and happy that it's stayed relevant for so long. And we did mention Mick Garris earlier. I'm a huge fan mm-hmm. of your work and his work, and especially Masters of Horror. Yeah, uh, your episode is one of my personal favorites. Uh, so, what was your inspiration for the V word? Well, that was Mick's script. He wrote really? the script. Oh, see, yeah. I didn't know that. He invited me to come on, and he said, "You have any script ideas?" I said, "Well, let me look." He said, "Well, I got a script if you want to read it." And I said, "Okay." And it was based on something that actually happened to uh, Mick. I think as a kid, I think they actually did sneak into a uh, a funeral parlor or or, or a funeral home. Got a chance to go see bodies and stuff. I actually watched it the other night, a couple of nights ago. First time, my first time seeing it after years. I haven't seen it in years. And yeah, I thought it was pretty good. It was great to work with Michael Ironside. He was so cool. The two young guys that that did it were really cool. The young lady who played his sister, the main character's sister, Terry Gilliam used her on in his movie Tideland. It was it was great. It was great. Mick was a great producer. He kept everybody away from me and basically let me make the film that I wanted to make. It doesn't happen all the time. But when it does, you know, it's a it's a real blessing because Mick was actually one of the best producers I ever worked with. And, you know, that made us even tighter friends. We need another Masters of Horror type show out there. There's nothing like that out there that I can think of. I think you're absolutely right, man. You're absolutely right. Because I uh, because I also watched uh, Toby Hooper's The Damn Thing. And that thing was so intense. And, you know, it gave everybody a chance to do some really interesting stuff. I remember Joe Dante did Dreams of the Witch House. I think that was Joe. Yeah, that was Joe, a yeah. great. That was a great episode. Much better than uh, or Stuart Gordon. It might have been. It might have been because Stuart had been the yeah. He's the, the Lovecraft the, guy. 
<laughs> no craft. I mean, yeah, nobody did it like Stuart. And uh, I miss him too, man, because he was such a cool guy. Yeah. I'm friends with Mick on Facebook, and he often shares, you know, the picture of, you're in the pictures, all you guys meeting for the uh, the big, I guess it's a dinner that you guys met up for? Masters. Yeah. Masters of our dinner. Yeah. 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 Yeah, but that's where I became good friends with everybody. You know, uh, actually, somebody became one of my tight running buddies was Toby Hooper. You know, Toby. Toby used to come over here. We, you know, he was my cigar smoking, scotch drinking partner. You know, and Toby and Joe, Joe Dante. You know, we work with Joe a lot. And actually, Joe's lady, um, uh, Liz. You know, is co-producing a film that my wife and I are going to do uh, a, a horror film that we've written together wow. called No Face that we're trying to get get out there. So. You know, and just being in contact with everybody has has really been great. It's um, you know we we miss Toby a lot. My wife stays in touch with his son Tony a lot, and they talk often. You know, he really he really became a good friend. This is something I like to ask everybody because you never know what they're going to say. Uh, <laughs> have you ever had an experience you would consider supernatural or paranormal? I've had some things happen to me that I couldn't explain. I don't know what it was. I remember as a kid going to summer camp and this was a camp in uh, New Jersey, uh, New Jersey, Pennsylvania. And we were sleeping out at night, one night out on our sleeping bags outside, outside of the cabins. And I heard something moving. I heard something and a shuffling sound. And I don't know what it was. I was under my sleeping bag <laughs> and i was afraid that if i ever looked that whatever it was it, it could it have been a bear i don't know but but i heard this shuffling <laughs> so i don't know what that was sounds like frankenstein <laughs> yeah or, or something yeah then another time i've always been a swimmer and and i go to the beach and i remember going to a beach in new jersey i think it was asbury park and swimming and i was swimming out there i'd swim pretty far out and i was swimming out there and i'm treading water and i'm looking back at the looking back towards the shore and i heard something behind me something went <laughs> and i turned around and it was nothing there but all these bubbles were coming up all these bubbles like a, a whole bunch of bubbles just coming up from underneath the water i swam back to shore so fast <laughs> I'm so happy that I made it. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what that was. You know, those are those are two things I could think of. There was a house that I lived in in New Jersey that was an old house. My son always used to tell me that he always felt that the house was haunted to a certain extent. And I never, I said, oh man, you're just imagining that stuff. And I forget why I had to spend the night in his room one night, but in his room one night, I'm sleeping and I thought I felt something right next to me. I had to look around, but I just had this feeling that I was not alone. Made you think about it, huh? <laughs> yeah. I mean, was it my imagination? I don't know. But uh, those are the only things I can think of off the top of my head. Hey, those count, man. <laughs> yeah. well Ernest, it's been a pleasure talking to you man i'm not going to keep you any longer but just to put a bow on everything won't you just tell everybody what's on the horizon for you anything in the pipeline well once the strike is over we've got several projects lined up that we want to try and get out there the script that my wife rose and i wrote uh no face uh we want to get that out there you know we have the script we've we've got our our pitch deck and uh and Joe's uh, fiance Elizabeth is one of our co-producers, so we'll see what's happening with that. I just got through writing a, a story outline for a ten-part limited series on the life of Duke Ellington, so I'm hoping I can do that. I had to do a deep dive into his life, and I found some really, really interesting stuff about him. So we have, we already have Jeffrey Wright attached to play Duke, so we have that. Gil Adler 
have me read a book that we're trying to figure out what we can do with it, you know, so hopefully we'll have a chance to work together again. Always looking for stuff, always looking for new projects. I wrote a, an anthology series updating the works of Edgar Allan Poe to modern day near future called <laughs> The Haunted Palace. And so want to try and get that out there too. Always looking for stuff. Here's one for you. Here's one for you. Out of all the projects you've worked on, be it, you know, directing, cinematography, what, what have you, what's the most challenging one that you would consider? Is, is there one you lost sleep over maybe? Oh, that's hard. Because you lose sleep over all of them. More recently, I did two episodes of a show called uh, Raised by Wolves, which was really challenging because um, we were shooting in Cape Town, South Africa, you know, in some really uh, challenging locations. Uh, really interesting locations. Uh, but that was fun because it was a great crew. But we were also <clears throat> shooting under the constraints of COVID. So, you know, we had to be careful with that. You know, we couldn't assemble in, in, in heavy groups and stuff. Gosh, that's hard. I think the earliest ones were, were the hardest because I was still trying to find my way. But I'm still looking for new challenges. Well, that's all I got for you, Ernest. It's been a pleasure chatting with you, like I said. And uh, Same here, man. Appreciate that. Thanks <laughs> right, for having all right. me. All right. Have a good rest of your day, man. You too, man. Bye-bye. All right, folks. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Ernest. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next time. Monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.